We don't have too much now. Our inventory hasn't built up. So I wouldn't expect the housing market to crater or to crash. We're going to see the prices come down a bit. So that's kind of helpful advice, hopefully, for or helpful education for people that are thinking about selling and they're afraid that they're going to be underwater in their house. Uh, it's unlikely that we're going to see a 30% drop in housing prices like what we saw in 07. It's just very unlikely that that's going to happen because we haven't built up this massive ownership of empty houses. We still don't have enough houses. Once more onto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to another exciting second hour of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Uh, we are going to befuse, confuse, bemuddle, uh, uh, defuse, and strain all of our listening audience as we talk about things such as Zambia's debt restructuring negotiations with China and other things of great bearing on your daily life right well actually yes. they do have bearing they do it's just distant <laughs> it comes around eventually i got some good news by the way you want to jump into that we were talking yeah. about bad news almost entirely last hour the united states the debt of the united states government is shrinking and when That's compared with inflation yes well not just simply it, it it's shrinking two things happened uh admittedly we're taking this against the backdrop of of two administration's worth of stimulus that went out there, three different stimulus bills. But uh, the combination of two things that are happening is that uh, the percent of GDP that our public debt uh, equates to, which is a convoluted sentence, is actually going down. And the reason is we're spending less money than we have recently as a government uh, and, and therefore borrowing less money. And the money that we borrowed at one and two percent uh, is shrinking in value um, as inflation runs at a high number, which leads me to a whole different subject. But I don't want to monopolize things. And I've got another subject here I want to talk about. Sure, jump jump right into that too. There is a myth that Holbert, no less, a famous uh, surveyor of economic things, who's often published in the Wall Street Journal and other places. Um, commented on this week that that's that rang true and i checked it and yeah I've, I've known it before it's just been a while high inflation and high interest rates to offset inflation in the long term hang on to your seats here produce bull markets in stocks historically wow why how can that be inflation is bad it's a terrible thing well there's a couple of things that happen in stock markets consists of stocks that are made up of companies that sell things, make things and then they sell them to somebody else or they buy them from someplace and sell them at a profit. In the stock market, the companies that are selling things can raise their prices to match inflation and to maintain their profitability. As a matter of fact, once the inflation sets in and the interest rates and all this kind of thing, in many cases, there's a, re there's a recession. In many cases, there's uh, a down market. But the bottom line to it is the companies who are, do, who are involved in this have the ability to offset inflation and keep charging. So historically, if you want to look strictly, and, and this is from Holbert in, in the Wall Street Journal, he's, a, again, been doing this for many, many, many years. 
and, and I went back and checked his data, and he's right. The bottom line to it is that the, when inflation surges, as it has, bonds get beat up horribly as they are. Gold tends to take a crash. Uh, it tends to be a really unpleasant time in a lot of places. And it, the stock market initially goes into a nosedive. But what he says, and I think, I think he said it very, very well, is it's, an, it's a myth that, that inflation damages the stock market. Uh, as a matter of fact, no, the biggest bull markets, you think back to Ronald Reagan and the bull market of the 1980s. The bull market of the 1980s had its foundation in high inflation at the beginning of the 1980s and high interest rates. And when the market dipped because Paul Volcker raised interest rates, investing at that point would have been a brilliant idea because everybody else was bolting for the door, among other things. Right. But it also ushered in a time period of tremendous economic well-being that followed. Now, if you don't do anything about inflation, which is what happened in the 1970s, if you don't do anything about inflation and you just let it ride, which is what the Federal Reserve and the administrations did in the 1970s, uh, we tend to blame that on Carter, but it's not. It's Congress and Carter and the people and everything else. Yeah, I have to, to remind that Carter was the first one to nominate Volcker, so and he's the right. one that did it. So he may have been ineffective as a president, but he didn't. Presidents don't ha don't control interest rates. Right, and and. So what happened is once and this is, and according to Holbert and I have in Tennessee, and obviously I checked his numbers, I think he's right in every aspect. Once the Federal Reserve gets serious about tackling inflation, it is a great time historically to be in stocks and a really lousy time to be in bonds and a really lousy time to be just anywhere, almost anywhere else with your money. But uh, obviously you need to have cash. Cash is always king in my opinion. You need to have, and this is very, very important. We look at the macroeconomics of this and say, yeah, stocks are, are probably a good place to invest right now for the long term. And they could go much lower. Obviously, they could go much lower. And we could get socioeconomic events anywhere around the world. I said that because we're in an unstable situation that could shock the stock market into a lower position. So long term, stocks look good. Short term, it is so critical that you have a good cash reserve to draw on when the bad shocks come, not if, but when. Yeah, agreed. Um, and in fact, I was waiting with bated breath, half holding my breath to jump in and say, uh, while we are very optimistic long-term on the stock market, you got to keep your short-term bases covered because we might have more down in the stock market. And if you're putting, you say, hey, I'm not going to buy a house right now. Interest rates got too high. I've been saving up to do it. I'll do it in a couple of years. I'll just invest this in the stock market. Well, that's a bad idea. If you need it in a couple of years, Murphy is around. He's a, he's, he listens to conversations and has secret livers that he pulls and you'll have a down market when you need the money. So if you have short-term needs for your money, it needs to be in the bank, in cash, preferably FDIC. Uh, make sure you find a good bank. that you, If you can get a relationship with somebody at the bank, that's even better. But then make sure that you're under all of the guidelines so that you're insured. Because banks have failed throughout the entirety of banking history, and they tend to have failures when inflation gets high. 
I don't see any problem in the U.S. banking system right now. This isn't me waving a flag around saying, look out, it's about to occur. It's the same thing I would say to you when you get in your car, put on your seatbelt. I'm not saying I see an imminent accident in your future. I am saying that accidents occur, and when traffic is really bad is when they occur the most. Inflation really bad is when bank accidents occurs the, occur the most. So make sure your savings are under the FDIC limit. And if you have to get another bank, get another bank to do it. Get multiple banks if you need to. If you need that cash short term, make sure it's covered. To get a little technical here, and I actually made this argument. I think I wrote it in the newsletter and we've talked about it a little bit. The, somebody, the question is, why do interest rates, when interest rates go up, short-term interest rates go up, does the stock market tend to go down? Because according to economics, you discount the future earnings of the companies, and that gives you the value of the stocks. What does discount mean? The higher the interest rate going forward, the lower future earnings can be valued. I won't get into more detail than that, except they're kind of like a bond. Earnings and and interest on bonds are very similar things. And the higher interest rates go, the lower bonds go, the value of a given bond goes. However, that doesn't mean that the stock values will go down in the future. That just means that the market thinks they will go down in the future and they take a dip. In fact, earnings tend to rise faster during periods of inflation than they do when we don't have inflation because it gives pricing room when they sell the stuff. Yeah, and this is something that when people, you you said, where are some bad places to be in inflation? What people think are safe, gold, Bitcoin, um, the dollar, what is that? I've heard people say, I just buy the dollar when inflation's coming. I'm, I'm stumped by that one. There doesn't make any sense to me at all. Uh, but it, there's, there's all these places that people say, this is what you do when inflation goes. The number one thing that will allow you to keep up with inflation, and I'll take this to the very simplest level, is if you're a small business owner, you keep your price, your profit margin the same. And if that means you have to raise your prices, you raise your prices um, so that you're still making a profit. And if your profit margin is measured in percentage, it doesn't matter what inflation's doing because you're selling at a higher price because people have more money your profit margin's good. So the place to go to avoid or to keep up with inflation is ownership in profitable companies. Well, that's the stock market if if you're making sure you're buying profitable companies, which has not been uh, the meme stock uh, theory in the past. So when we, when we look and anybody listening to this program for more than uh, a year has heard us talk about meme stocks at length about how the concept of no we can make it be more valuable just by convincing everyone to continue to buy it well that only lasts until you're ready to sell it and then everybody's going to be selling it at the same time too just ask the crypto market right now so this is this is the fundamental nature when you're buying something and you wish to make a profit on it number one the thing you're buying should be creating something of value. It shouldn't just sit there. Gold doesn't create anything. So you shouldn't expect to make a profit. Is it possible to make a profit buying and selling gold? Absolutely. But you shouldn't expect one coming in out of nowhere saying, I'm going to buy gold and I'm going to sell it later for a profit. You shouldn't expect a profit unless you've added some kind of a value to it. So let's flip that. If you're a jewelry store owner, a jeweler, and you buy gold, you should expect to make a profit on that 
even when the price of gold falls because you're adding value to it. And as long as you don't have a massive inventory of gold in the back, you're buying it as you need it. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the point. If you bought a bunch of gold and then the price goes down and you're trying to sell it and make a profit, it's kind of like the guys that I actually, I actually encountered this when I was in a teenager. Two guys selling watermelons off the back of a truck that they had bought for 50 cents. Uh-huh. But the store down the way was selling them for 40 cents, which should tell you how long ago this was. So they literally dropped the price to 25 cents and were selling their watermelons. And I said, you guys are going to lose a lot of money. And one of them, very, who was older than I was, said, mm, we're going to make it up on volume. <laughs> yeah so the, selling something at a lo- loss doing more of it just means more loss uh, yeah. so the the point is as jake said if you can if the if the business is still there now when when does the business owner lose money that's when people start buying stuff and they've got a big inventory and in order to sell the inventory you have to lower the prices but the prices now go below what you paid for it then you got a problem, which is why deflation is so dangerous to the economy. Right. As long as we have inflation. Even a little bit of inflation is healthy. A little bit, a lot of it is not so good. So across the economy, if we have inflation and I'm, a, I'm buying something wholesale and then selling it to the public and it sits there in my warehouse or sits there in the back of my business for a little while, as long as there's still the demand for it, the prices will be higher when I sell it later because we have inflation. And that is very profitable in the long term to corporations. Now, individual companies who got stuck in the wrong thing, which, by the way, happened to FedEx, uh, they kept their business model the same as the world changed, and they made a mistake. Uh, UPS and others shifted around and started doing different things rather than just trying to do deliveries because there were a lot of little companies that were competing with them. And FedEx didn't do it, so FedEx got caught in a trap. Exactly. So and. This is actually, you're hitting a point that if we take this to a larger scale and look at the entirety of the economy, the number one cause of recessions since we've been measuring recessions is an inventory imbalance. When you fill up your warehouse with things that you think people are going to buy and then people stop buying them. So the demand didn't last as long as you expected it to. You start a bicycle shop People are buying bicycles from you. You say, they're buying bicycles fast. I live in a small town, but they're buying my bikes as fast as I can sell them. I need to buy more bikes. My response to that is, look at the size of your market first. Because if you're selling a lot of bikes, if you live in a town with a thousand people, you're probably going to saturate your town pretty quick with those bikes. And then if you have a big inventory of bikes because they were being bought so fast, you're just going to sit on that inventory. So this is, when we look at um, even four or five months ago, we were talking about this on the air. We're looking at Walmart and Target and Best Buy and seeing that their inventory is rising. When we looked at the first quarter of this year, it was the reason why we had negatives as far as growth shrinkage. We had negatives because we had a big inventory that we built up at the end of last year for all that excess demand that nobody was getting fulfilled. They've been waiting to get this stuff for a year during the lockdown. Now they finally want it and they can't get it. So they're, sell- they're buying it as fast as they can. And the companies go, we can't find enough of it to sell. So they bought too much of it. 
that leads to prices coming down, but it can also lead to profits going down or going away completely for the people selling those things. So this this supply-demand imbalance that we've talked about for multiple years now, this the bullwhip effect as the supply chains have been moving back and forth, the danger is that we build up a massive inventory somewhere and can't get rid of it. We're not seeing a lot of that, even in the housing market, which is something we wanted to touch on next where we're beginning to see prices come down. Um, this is fascinating stuff. Uh, home buyer affordability, um, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association, improved for the third straight month in August. Prices have been coming down. The median loan amount, which is an important number, it's not the price of the house, but the median loan amount in August was 313500 the peak in February was $340,000. That's almost a 10% drop. So it's a, it's a major drop in a short period of time. Prices are coming down. They weren't really sustainable at that rate. So we're seeing that happen. Well, what has happened on the inventory? Because we're talking about supply and demand. Well, inventory's up, but it's starting to shrink again because people are afraid to put their house on the market because if they sell their house, they're going to have to go buy a new house and interest rates are too high. So don't expect the prices to fall drastically right away. We're not in a bubble in the housing market. Most people don't own multiple houses with the intent of selling them to make a profit like 2006 and 2007. If you're buying a house this year, it's probably the house you actually are going to live in. Where back then it was a house that you claimed you were going to live in with the other four houses that you had. When the majority of the purchases in the market were for extra homes, we had too much and there was a bubble. We don't have too much now. Our inventory hasn't built up, so I wouldn't expect the housing market to crater or to crash. We're going to see the prices come down a bit. So that's kind of helpful advice, hopefully, for or helpful education for people that are thinking about selling and they're afraid that they're going to be underwater in their house. Uh, it's unlikely that we're going to see a 30% drop in housing prices like what we saw in 07. It's just very unlikely that that's going to happen because we haven't built up this massive ownership of empty houses. We still don't have enough houses. Um, when, we look at, when we're talking about the recession, we've been talking about, well, even six months ago, we were saying in the next 18 months, uh, 60% we were going to have a recession. The way I'm looking at the recession that we're coming up on, this is the delayed recession we expected in 2020 that we didn't get because of stimulus and a lot of other things that took place. We expected a recession to occur in 2020 during 2018 and 2019 because the economy was running hot. Our Prices were not imbalanced with our inventories. There were we were running at top capacity. We couldn't build faster than we were building as far as your normal industrial output, the normal production. And now we're getting to that point where that's being recognized. Even with more people being hired, we're not able to make more stuff. We've reached that productivity limit on hiring. So this is where we would expect the economy to take a pause. So coming in the next quarter, this quarter, it started uh, in September, I would expect that 
we, you know, I, I'm going to change what I've said recently even. I would expect that this quarter or next quarter, we may be called a recession. Uh, a big chunk of that goes back to what I said back in February when we were looking at the invasion of Ukraine. And I recommend people go back and listen to what we said back then about what is the long-term implication to the economy. Well, there's a lot of stuff that comes out of there. We're going to see a lot of inflation. I don't expect it to be a cause of a recession. This is all stuff that we talked about. But I said the big danger was a massive lockdown in a sustained way in China. And that's that with the Ukrainian invasion is the what I would say as the primary, the dual primary, if you will, for why we're going to probably see it a, a recession coming up in the next three to six months. I would put it there's above 50%. Aspect. There's a big aspect of this that I think is very hard to see from our snails, our worm's eye view that we have in the economy day to day. And, and that is that we are in a global economy, whether we like it or not. We are very, 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 very much interlocked with the economies of the rest of the world. And, and that's one of the reasons our standard of living has risen so well. And there's a problem. Germany is the powerhouse of Europe. There, there's three big economic blocks in the world that drive the train. That's China, the United States, and the European Union. In the European Union, a piece of it fell off, by the way, which is in deep economic trouble, which should tell you how secession really works. Yeah, that's the UK. Brexit. The United, the United Kingdom is cruising into a major recession while at the same time facing double-digit inflation. And most of, I mean, everybody is having a problem in Europe right now, but the severity of the problem in the United Kingdom is as bad as it is anywhere in Europe right now, worse than anywhere else in Europe. They're worse off than Greece and Italy right now, if that's hard, that's hard to believe. Why? Well, because they decided to go it on their own. So this is the, this is the point that I'm trying to make. Germany has been making a lot of money, the industry in Germany has been making a lot of money by buying cheap energy from Russia and selling to China. Ooh, is that a problem? The cheap energy from Russia, just which is gas, by the way, natural gas, just got cut off. And China is cruising downhill from at least two major issues that are going on in the country. The real estate collapse, it's slow motion real estate collapse that's going on in the, in the COVID lockdowns. Germany's in a hurt. Europe is in a hurt. China is in a hurt. The United States is linked to them. Now, are we leading? Do we tend to do better than they do under these circumstances? Yes, but that doesn't mean it won't pull us down to some degree. We'll probably and wind up pulling them that. out of the recession. Yes. We're likely to recover from this faster. Um, and we can point and we can say the Federal Reserve raising interest rates is the, the cause of the recession. You could say that. But I would actually say that the recession needs to occur. We're not ready for it. We're ne you're never ready for it. You never say, now is the time we should have a recession. Let's say, yay. There's no kumbaya, kumbaya being sung here. But we, you need recessions in any economy. Our economy needs to have a recession at some point to digest out the really bad stuff. I mean, the meme stocks and the cryptocurrency bubbles that have been burst at this point. They're not fully burst, by the way. They are just burst a bit. Um, why do I say that? Is because they still don't represent value. They don't represent something being created to add to the economy in any way. 
Um, and until they do, then their price being as high as it is even now, even with it cratering, is too high. Uh, we need a bad economy to come along to let people look around and say, did you really want to buy designer shoelaces and replace them every week? Is that a really good spending model? And if things are good forever, sure, that's a great spending model. And the company making those shoelaces may be very profitable. But when you come down to it, it's not really a great benefit to the world and is likely a fad. And next week, it may be that you don't wear shoelaces at all. And that's, that's what I'm saying is that a recession gives us time to pause a minute, look around and see what we really consider to be necessary. Will we get back to excess again in the future? Absolutely. This is the cycle. And, and in the process of that cycle of saying, all right, let's excess and what's necessary, new things coming in. I mean, we got the smartphone. Was that excess? Well, no, it added a lot to us. We also got all kinds of other things at the same time that we look back now and laugh at. Well, did people actually want to use that forever? What was that? Why did we buy it? And you are all quite capable of coming up with an example of that at a very short notice of why is it that I bought it or why is it that other people were buying that thing at such a high price, whether it be Cabbage Patch Dolls, Beanie Babies, which were the cryptocurrency of the 1980s and 90s, by the way. Beanie Babies were cryptocurrency back then. And some people made a massive profit on it. Most people did not. The vast majority of people that bought Beanie Babies did not make a profit on their Beanie Babies. Um, I have some Beanie Babies that I made a profit on, not monetarily. My kids like to play with them. And I didn't buy them at some kind of collector's market. I bought them at the store as a toy. So in my mind, that's a profit. I got what I paid for, and I've gotten more use out of it than I think it was worth monetarily. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, This is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is a professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this st- in, on this station, 1400 AM in Temple, since 1996. We've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational, and 
we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve that's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at two, five, four, nine, four, seven, 11, 11. You can reach that line tool free at one, eight hundred nine, one, four, seven, five, two, six. That's eight hundred nine, fourteen plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.